Well, hi, everyone. I am not Brent Cunningham. Uh, We decided because uh, we decided to give Brent the night off because he has been speaking the last three weeks and Brent does a great job, of course, but uh, we wanted to give him the night off. So I'm able to pinch hit for him tonight. I'm Donnie Abbott, for those of you who don't know. I'm actually the children's pastor here at Timberline, but I have the opportunity to speak uh, at Wednesday night community every once in a while. Uh, So thank you for allowing me to be here. And uh, it is good to be together, isn't it? Um, I hope that you all have been enjoying this particular series, Jesus Behaving Badly, the puzzling and offensive things that Jesus did. That's, that's a great title, isn't it? I love that. I mean, the things that Jesus did when he walked the earth were scandalous by first century standards. I mean, he was a friend of sinners, he touched lepers, he had women as followers, and there were a whole host of other things that he did that first century religious leaders living in Palestine simply did not do. So I'm really enjoying this series tonight, and tonight we'll take a look uh, not at something that Jesus did, but instead we'll take a look at something that Jesus said. And I think that it's quite possibly the most puzzling and offensive thing that Jesus said in his time on earth, at least in my opinion. The setting is the Last Supper. The last time that Jesus will enjoy a meal with his followers, and it's Passover, so they're enjoying a traditional Passover meal. And as they are gathering together, a lot is going on in this meal. This dinner occurs in the book of John, chapters 13 and 14. And we're all familiar with this scene. We all know it. Uh, this, is, this is a scene where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He informs them that one amongst them is going to betray him. And sure enough, Judas does. So now let me pick up and read from the book of John, chapter 13, verse 31. John, chapter 13, verse 31. And God's word tells us this, when he was gone, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, So I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? That's a fair question, right? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. 
Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now we go into chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, like I said, a lot is happening in this passage, right? Uh, Dr. John Piper, he refers to this scene as unholy turmoil. Just put yourself in the disciples' shoes for just a minute because they're trying to make sense of everything that Jesus has been telling them over the course of this dinner. He's been talking about dying. The disciples are still trying to understand this, this crazy object lesson of Jesus washing their feet. Jesus informs them that one of them is going to betray him. He tells one of his closest friends, Peter, that he will deny that they were ever friends. You have to admit that this is a lot to take in over the course of a meal. And when I read this passage, I get a sense that there is, there's tension, there's uncertainty, there's confusion, curiosity, bewilderment, a lot of furrowed brows and turned heads. Like, am I hearing you right? You can see why Piper calls this unholy turmoil. And this moment is particularly poignant because Jesus knows that he's about to die. I mean, he's the only guy in the room who knows that. He's been telling his followers that he is going to die, but it's just not computing. They're not getting it. Remember, these guys have spent the last three years in intimate, close relationship with Jesus. And you would think that they would have some sort of, of semblance of understanding what Jesus is talking about, but they don't. So what we just read are the words of a dying man. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever journeyed with a friend or a loved one as they were dying? For those of us who have spent last moments with a dying person, you know that those moments are fleeting, aren't they? And what is said during those last moments, it has to count. Oftentimes, the dying, they want to get their affairs in order. There's this uh, palliative uh, professor, uh, Dr. Ira Bayak, who writes that dying people, they typically want to hear and they want to say 
four things. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you. This past summer, I had the chance to sit bedside with two people who I cared for as they were dying. The first, uh, back in July, was my aunt. She was one of those super fun, uh, zany, crazy, loving aunts. I have many fond memories of my Aunt Janie as I was growing up as a kid. And about two years ago, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And this past July, my cousin texted me and told me that her mom was about to die. So I reached out uh, through FaceTime. And when I contacted my aunt, she was unresponsive, but I was able to tell her that I loved her. I read her some scripture and I was able to say goodbye. And then about a week later, I did the same thing with a fellow timberliner who actually had stage four liver cancer. A young guy, 45 years old, had stage four liver cancer. And I went to his house a few days before he passed away. And myself and his family, we gathered at his bedside. And again, I read scripture and I prayed for him and his family. Last moments in a person's life are sacred, aren't they? So here we are in the book of John, chapter 14, and Jesus is sharing a last moment with his followers together. And one of the last things that he wants to share with them is to tell them that there is a place in his father's house that he is going to prepare for them. Oh, and that they know the way. And one of my favorite guys in the New Testament, <laughs> Thomas, he speaks up. He says, uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. <laughs> how, how can we know the way? Any of you identify with Thomas? Because that would totally be me. Jesus's reply to Thomas is the puzzling and offensive thing that we'll look at tonight. Jesus responds to the turmoil that they are feeling by stating, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is through me. Now, something that Pastor Brent, when he's teaching, he does a great job of, is to remind us about context. Because context is everything when you're reading scripture. And as it relates to this particular passage, it's hard for us to understand how the words of Jesus would have sounded to the ears of a first century Jew. Remember, Judaism is monotheistic, right? They believe in only one God. And at that point, the Jews had been waiting for several millennia for the Messiah, the one who was going to uproot and kick out the Roman occupation and usher in a brand new heavenly kingdom on earth. And here's Jesus now standing before his followers. And he's saying things like, you believe in God, believe also in me. And anyone who has seen me 
has seen the Father. By making these kinds of statements, Jesus is not so subtly implying that he is God. And then he goes on to state, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is through me. A puzzling and problematic statement then, and a puzzling and problematic statement now. Because for those of us who are followers of Jesus, you know that this is not a popular view to hold today. It's not popular because it's so exclusionary. Just bring that statement up at your next dinner party. See see what kind of response you get. (laughs) If you say that and you believe the words of Jesus, then in today's pluralistic culture, you'll be looked upon as narrow-minded as someone who's not open to new ideas. And the worst accusation of all is that you're intolerant. Perhaps you've heard statements like these. All roads lead to God. I heard Oprah herself say that. Imagine Oprah, cultural icon, has huge influence. All roads lead to God. Isn't Allah just another name for God? Who are you to say that Buddha and enlightenment aren't paths to God? And essentially, when people make statements and ask questions like these, what they are saying is that there are many ways, many paths to God. But Jesus, in this passage, he's telling us, something completely different. He's saying that there's only one way, and that way is through him. So let's break this verse down into three parts. First, we'll look at I am the way. Three years ago, my wife and I, we celebrated our, uh, our 20th wedding anniversary. And I was going to surprise her with a trip to New York City. Pretty cool, right? Uh, But as I went about planning the trip, I really felt like uh, that I needed and I wanted her input on planning our trip. And uh, our anniversary is in January. So in October, she and I started to plan our trip. And we had such a fun time researching all the cool places we were going to go and just planning the trip. And then January rolled around. And we were on our way, and we had a great time uh, adventuring through New York City. And as you can imagine, there's a lot to see in New York, right? (laughs) I mean, we were only there three or four days, so you couldn't possibly see it all in. So what we had to do, we had to stick to our itinerary that we created. And the itinerary kept us on track. It kept us from getting lost. And when you and I get spiritually lost, when we lose our way, Jesus says, if you want to get back on the right path, to find your way, to remember that he is the way. He says, I am the way. Now, you notice that this phrase begins with, I am am. 
And this goes back to the Old Testament where we see the exchange between Moses and God at the burning bush. God had appointed Moses to be the mouthpiece for his people as he goes and talks to Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 3, we read that, Then Moses asked God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am is another name for Yahweh. It's the name that God wished to be known and worshiped throughout Israel. It's the name that fully expresses his character as the dependable and faithful God. It means that he is self-sufficient, self-sustaining, the God who was, who is, and who will always be. And I like how the biblical scholar, David Guzik, he kind of brings, uh, he kind of personalizes this term, I am, by stating also inherent in the idea behind the name I am is the sense that God is the becoming one. God becomes whatever is lacking in our time of need. The name I am invites us to fill in the blank to meet our need. When we are in darkness, Jesus says, I am the light. When we are hungry, he says, I am the bread of life. When we are defenseless, he says, I am the good shepherd. God is the becoming one, becoming what we need. I love that. And and Jesus explicitly uses this term, I am, to refer to himself in John chapter 8. See, at that point, Jesus and the Pharisees are having a rather heated discussion where the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. And their exchange culminates with Jesus stating, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was... I am. Now, of course, this sets the Pharisees off because they knew what making that kind of statement meant. What it meant is that Jesus was equating himself to God. Now, going back to the question that Thomas asked of Jesus, how can we know the way? People ask the same question today, don't they? People want to know the way. And I see this firsthand on a weekly basis here at Timberline. You know, being a pastor uh, puts me and the rest of the pastoral team in a unique position to receive calls from people wanting to know the way. We all share what is called POC or pastor on call. And what it means is that we each have to take uh, five three-hour shifts throughout the month And during our shift, we'll receive walk-ins, we'll answer emails, we'll return phone calls from people who are desperately searching for answers. They want to know the way. Recently, I was uh, was POC, 
and I received a call from a gal who had been dealing with demonic manifestations in her house. And the interesting thing about her calling is that she wasn't a believer. In fact, her and her three roommates were very much against the church. But here she is calling the church. She was looking for a way. And as we talked, I asked her if she or her roommates had dabbled in any kind of, uh, any kind of occultic practices or behavior. And she, she came out and said, yeah, her roommates, they uh, take part in tarot card reading almost every day. She wanted to know how to get rid of this thing that was terrorizing her and her roommates. And I said, well, you know, you got to get rid of the tarot cards. You need to renounce this and you need to turn to God because Jesus is the way. The second part of Jesus' statement is, I am the truth. Again, another definitive statement that isn't very popular in today's culture. A culture that doesn't really hold to the belief that there is empirical, objective truth. Instead, we live in a culture of growing moral relativism, right? What is true for you may not be true for me. Let me read you a statement from this website on moral relativism. This is amazing. Moral relativism is the view that ethical standards, morality, and positions of right or wrong are culturally based and therefore subject to an individual choice. We can all decide what is right for ourselves. Isn't that great? Huh? You decide what's right for you. I'll decide what's right for me. Moral relativism says, it's true for me if I believe it. Wow. And of course, this kind of thinking leads to the belief that nobody and nothing is objectively right or wrong. Who am I to say that something is right? Who are you to say that I'm wrong? I have a short video that I want to share with you that sort of captures what some people are thinking. Check this out. What a question, what is true? That's a really hard question, what is true? What is truth? We understand it in a way that makes sense for us. Truth is very hard to give a definition to, I think. It's one of the most pivotal times in history. I have never sensed a more momentous occasion than now. The world is reeling with uncertainty. It's almost like it's in the air. Everything's truth is coming from our mind, I believe. I might interpret truth through the lens of science. I might interpret truth through the lens of uh, some ideology, perhaps communism. We've got a crisis of truth, not only in the universities, but in the culture. For us, truth is relative and subjective and pragmatic and so on. At its worst, truth is dead. What is truth? 
different people with different value systems may have different what they see as truth. I truly believe there's a difference between fact and truth. There is a real sense of fear and uncertainty and nobody seems to have the answers. Truth is hard to define because everybody sees things in different ways. I have a bit of the truth, you have a bit of the truth. Truth is everything's coming from our insight. That's truth never coming from the outside. Well, you can see from these folks that truth is hard to nail down, but is desperately needed in our world. You heard what a couple of these folks said. Truth comes from within, or it comes from science, or it, uh, from a political belief system. Everybody sees truth in different ways. I have a bit of truth. You have a bit of truth. Truth comes from our insight. Because people are so confused about what and who truth is, and because in our culture there is no objective right or wrong, and because there is no empirical objective truth, then we must tolerate the views of others. We see this in our culture all around us, right? Many of you, in your work environment, you have sat through some kind of presentation that talks about how you are to be tolerant and sensitive to people who say, live differently than you, or have different beliefs than you. Truth seems to be this elusive thing that is just out of reach. Some of you who are a little bit older, you might remember Johnny Cash famously sang a song that had the lyric, And the lonely voice of the youth cries, What is truth? That's my best Johnny Cash impression. What is truth? That's the same question asked of Jesus 2,000 years earlier by the Roman ruler Pilate as he was interrogating Jesus. Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, asked Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to what? To the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Ah, what is truth? Pilate replied. Pilate's reaction is the same one that you'll get from people when you bring up absolute truth or you say that Jesus is truth. People get dismissive and they ask, how can you or anybody else know what is truth? This, this thinking is reflected in an interesting study. 
by uh, the Barna Research Group that found that 58% of Americans believe there is no absolute moral truth. 58% say that the basis of truth are factors or sources other than God. 77% believe that right or wrong is determined by factors other than the Bible. And then 59% believe the Bible is not the authoritative and true word of God. And these stats reflect the fact that people are unsure of where to find truth. And many don't realize that truth can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ and in his holy scriptures. All right, the third aspect of what Jesus said is, I am the life. I am the life. In order to fully understand what Jesus is saying here and what he meant, we need to read from the book of John chapter 1. We read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was what? Life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word here is logos, and it's another name for Jesus. You could read the verse this way. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. And this theme of Jesus being the life is all throughout the New Testament, but in particular is found in the book of John. John chapter 11 reads, as Jesus was talking to Lazarus's sisters, he said to them, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two, God made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John 3.35, he who believes in the son has everlasting what? Life. John 4.14, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. John 5.21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. And then finally, John 5.24, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now, I'm not... I'm not going to say any more about this for fear that it would cheapen the words of Jesus. I think that we're all getting the picture, right? Jesus is life. This one verse that we've looked at tonight, as puzzling and offensive as it might have been, and it might still be, I feel it summarizes the good news of Jesus Christ as well as any other verse in Scripture. 
The night that Jesus gathered with his followers, he told them to not let their hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Why do you think he said that? He said it because their hearts were troubled. Were troubled with the things that he was saying, the things that he was doing. Your heart might be troubled tonight also. I don't know what personal issues you're dealing with or or health issues or financial issues or work issues you're dealing with, but you're here tonight and you have a troubled heart. I know that the remedy for a troubled heart comes from what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is through him. And that's some good news right there. We're further reminded of the way to the Father as we come to the communion table. It's at the table that we are reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And it's here that we try to identify with Christ in his suffering. And when we do, we hear the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So as the band plays, I encourage you all to come to the tables. There's tables throughout the room. There's some in the back and two up here up front. And uh, the elements are in these uh, hermetically sealed Uh, communion. The little wafer is on the top and the juice is on the bottom. So as the band plays, come and get uh, the elements. Go back to your seat and we'll partake in it together. Well, thank you for coming tonight. Let me send you out with a blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and grant you his peace. God bless everyone. Have a great week.